On today's episode of OMG Omics, you're going to hear from Mike Gregg, who's the director of Brooker's Pharma Biopharma division. I hope that you enjoy his story. He's got some really interesting anecdotes that I think you'll find enjoyable. Hi, Mike. I'm excited to welcome you as a guest to Brooker's OMG Omics podcast series. As usual, I was hoping you'd start by sharing your personal story with us and taking us through your journey of how you got to Brooker. Okay. Um, so I started out at University of Delaware. I was a chemistry major there. Um, I was born in Oregon, went to high school outside Chicago, so I thought I'd try the East Coast for college. Um, so I went there. Uh, after Delaware, I decided to head back west. And I went to San Diego and I got a job with Revlon. Revlon had a very small lab in San Diego. And there I was uh, got a job as a polymer chemist doing nail polish and lipstick. So that was quite exciting. I did that for about a year and a half. Uh, and then uh, I decided I would try something different. And so I went to work for a biotech company called Isis Pharmaceuticals. Uh, it's an anti-sense company. They're called Ionis now for obvious reasons. Um, so, uh, I started there, uh, and that's, uh, kind of where I was first exposed to mass spec. Uh, we got a mass spec at, at ISIS and, uh, we had three of us volunteered to try to learn how to use it. Fortunately, I could figure it out pretty quickly. Uh, the very first things I ever did on a mass spec were oligonucleotides doing negative mode. And, uh, that's the only world I know. I didn't know most of the world did positive mode and thought negative mode was not so easy. So uh, I got a good start there. The very first paper I ever wrote was a native mass spec paper, uh, but we actually didn't even have native mass spec in the keywords because we didn't uh, know uh, that it was even a term at the moment. Um, while I was there, I uh, met a bunch of scientists from Alan Marshall's lab at the National High Magnetic Field Lab at Florida State. And I was fortunate to spend time there as a visiting scientist. Uh, so I did a lot of ICR work, um, and I think the experience in uh, Marshall's lab wasn't just so much uh, working on amazing instrumentation in the national lab, which was really cool, but also the people I got to work with were some of the uh, brightest minds in that spec. And so uh, I think just through osmosis, just being around those guys, I just learned amazing things, and so it's really phenomenal. From there, I uh, got recruited to go to a small biotech company called Alanex in San Diego. It's a combinatorial chemistry company. Uh, they got bought by Warner Lambert. Uh, and uh, so that was exciting because the Warner Lambert, uh, they had Park Davis at the time in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's where Joe Lou was. And so uh, I got to overlap with Joe Lou for a little bit. Uh, and obviously, he's a native mass spec expert, so just being around him and his group was uh, phenomenal for also helping me learn different types of mass spec. Um, then Pfizer came along and uh, took over Warner Lambert, um, and uh, so I was part of what was uh, eventually Pfizer, and I was part of that whole world for 20 years. Uh, the thing I always tell people was nice about working for Pfizer uh, is that uh, we reorged about every three years. And so every three years, I got a new job. Uh, I started out doing combinatorial chemistry, small molecule analysis, purification, uh, LCMS, uh, su uh, supercritical fluid chromatography MS, 
and then the last group I was in was a structural biology group, uh, mostly X-ray crystallography. But in my group, we did a lot of uh, proteomics, HD exchange, structural biology with mass spec. And so it's uh, uh, all those reorgs actually made it kind of fun because I got to do a lot of different so like a lot of our guests, you really have quite the journey. And, and I think you might win the prize for running the gamut of different fields of study, different types of analysis that you've done. So between all of these different subject areas and professional roles, what are some of the most important lessons you've learned along the way? And are there any additional people that have helped you at this time? I think probably the biggest impact on my career was a couple things. Um, one thing, uh, Working, starting out my career in biotech, uh, my boss was Rich, Rich Griffey at the time, and um, he basically ran our group almost like a, uh, you know, a, a PhD program. And uh, before I left uh, ISIS, I had almost 20 publications, um, you know, doing everything from gas phase uh, chemistry of nucleotides, uh, uh, structural analysis, native mass spec, and so being in biotech in the 90s, where you really had to learn a lot of different things and contribute to fundamental science just to show ISIS or just to show that these different companies, biotechs, uh, are good science companies to get funding uh, was, was a great time to be in biotech. Uh, and, and I think, you know, uh, even now, if you're in the small biotech companies, you, you have to learn everything and contribute to the companies to make them. Um, the other thing that was really nice is while I was there, I got to go as a visiting scientist uh, to Marshall's group, as I mentioned before. And that actually came about uh, an ASMS. My first ASMS, I met a couple of guys, Jared Grader and Chris Hendrickson. Chris Hendrickson is now the director of the Meg Lab. I met those guys on an elevator at ASMS. And uh, we were just talking and decided to go have a beer and uh, we became good friends uh, about three ASMSs later we actually talked about mass spec and what we did and that's when I uh, went to their lab and uh, worked with them uh, as a visiting scientist. You've really given us quite the rich history of, of what you've done. Um, and you've given us a little bit of a taste of some of the moments that have um, catapulted you into new roles. Is there a science OMG moment, even if it's not mass spec related, that really made you love the field of chemistry, science or something? Yep, that was, uh, so I went to Buffalo Grove High School, it's the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. And uh, I had an AP chemistry, uh, Dr. Bowles, he was just an amazing guy, super energetic, made the class very fun, uh, which is pretty amazing to say about an AP chemistry course. Um, what really sealed it, it was a couple uh, weeks before Christmas break one year. Uh, we did a, a saccharides experiment. And uh, so we were mixing all these compounds together and we made these uh, two ropes, a red and white one, and we twisted them up. And uh, then he told us to put a bend in them. And then everybody in the class all of a sudden realized, holy crap, we just made candy canes. And so uh, he turned uh, science into candy for us. And so that was... Uh, uh, it, it just showed us that science could be include all kinds of things, be very fun and tasty. It's very appropriate, I think, for this last episode of the year as well as we approach the holiday season. So it was a really nice anecdote. 
So maybe let's turn a little bit more fully to the actual science that you've done and what you've observed in the fields that you've been in. What have you seen evolve um, overall, whether it's in pharma or any of the other places that you've been? Um, so I guess two things. So drug discovery, uh, the advancements in drug discovery over my career have been amazing um, in uh, the way things are approached, the throughput, the speed, uh, what a single scientist can contribute now um, just due to technology, internet, even things like chat GPT that are starting to come into everywhere now. So that's been been really amazing to see. Uh, it was always, I, I loved working at Pfizer in drug discovery. Uh, I had friends in all different companies. The really nice thing working with Bruker now is I get to go visit these people in all the other pharma labs and biotech labs and get to talk about the science they're doing uh, in more detail than we were allowed to talk about before. And so, um, what everybody's doing in these labs is just phenomenal at an individual level. Mass spec wise, the, uh, I guess the usability and robustness of instruments is amazing. Uh, when I first started, uh, I was on a single quad instrument, um, with the fusion pumps. Uh, I basically had to rebuild that instrument like every other day to keep it running. Uh, which in one day away was really great because I learned a lot about mass spec uh, by building and rebuilding and replacing components and everything else. Uh, so that was nice. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to uh, you know a high throughput lab. Um, so now the instruments there, just the software, the hardware, everything about a mass spec instrument uh, is just more usable. And uh, now you see, you know. 20 years ago, you would never see an instruments in mass specs and biology labs. Now they're just everywhere. Every lab has mass specs. And so it's, uh, the, the change has been pretty remarkable. So you mentioned a couple of different components that make up the pharmaceutical industry, but some of our listeners really may not understand or be familiar with the drug discovery pipeline. Can you tell us a little bit more about the evolution um, of a drug and what happens throughout that process? Yeah, so generally uh, you start out, you know, most places will start out with the disease or therapeutic area, uh, and then you basically decide what your target's going to be. Um, there are a lot of publications where they say, and, and you see like Time Magazine will say, oh, cancer's cured, we found the next target. Uh, whether it's Time Magazine or analytical chemistry or science, uh, it's just a constant bombardment of new targets for uh oncology or heart disease or, or, or whatever other therapeutic area you work in. I mainly worked in oncology my last 10 years in, in uh, Pfizer, so I'm most familiar there. Uh, but you see all these targets uh, that are potential for, uh, you know, curing whatever, you know, type of breast cancer, uh, you know, whatever other type of cancer you're talking about. Uh, so the first thing we do in pharma is we validate those targets. So that's a very early discovery we call the pipeline. So there's target validation. Once a target's been validated by multiple biological, analytical, and other methods, um, if the target's validated, then we go on and we generally do a high-throughput screening campaign. Um, while that high-throughput screening campaign goes on, there's also a lot of work uh, with biology, which also includes a lot of analytical chemistry, to figure out mechanism of action. Uh, if mechanism of action can be defined, 
chances of success in clinical trials are uh, increased dramatically. Um, and then uh, the next stage is you move down the pipe, you get, uh, you get a lead compound, uh, and then you start looking for biomarkers, things like that. Uh, having good biomarkers also increases your chance of clinical success quite a bit. Uh, as you move down, we call it moving downstream, uh, you get into the uh, uh, preclinical, call it pre-human studies, then you move to human studies, phase one trial, that's generally a, a can uh, just as the drug tolerable to humans. Um, and then you move to phase two, phase three, where you look for efficacy, and then the drug hits the market. So Mike, how does mass spectrometry fit into this? What stages use technology as critical aspects? Are mass spectrometers important in pushing this to clinical trials and into eventual approval? Um, the, the fun thing about working in mass spectrometry is that it kind of applies everywhere. Um, and it's also really nice because it doesn't just apply to drug discovery. Mass spec can be used for uh, petroleum, it's for food science, uh, you know, for uh, you know, looking at toxic waste, uh, you know, all, all kinds of different things. Uh, in the drug discovery pipeline, uh, mass spec is used basically everywhere. It's used in the very early discovery stages, uh, especially for uh, target validation, things like that. Uh, it can be used for screening. Uh, you know, the Bruker-Tim's top is being used in lots of uh, early discovery labs for basically every part uh, up to uh, preclinical trials. Um, when you get farther downstream, mass spectrometry, usually coupled with LC, uh, is used for QC, could be used for um, QC of the drugs, could be looking for uh, impurities in drug product. Uh, and then it's also used in later stages, looking at drug metabolism. Uh, you get blood samples from clinical trials, and there you're going to start also looking at drug metabolism. And you'll can be looking at things like uh, biomarkers, things like that. Uh, for we do uh, have good mass spec imaging uh, with our Bruker instruments, and uh, there you can take a look at drug distribution. Um, and uh, really importantly, uh, we can look at uh, non-targeted approaches. And so if there's an unknown metabolite, uh, we can identify those too. So with all of this and all of the technology that goes into pharma, what do you see as one of the, the biggest barriers for mass spec to be marketable to the pharma or biopharma industry? Well, mass spec is already very marketable to the, <laughs> to the pharma industry. Uh, literally almost every single pharma lab you go into, there is going to be a mass spec doing something. To in increase that, it just basically comes down to ease of use in, in uh, you know, software. Um, when you go into, you have your core mass spec labs where the, the guys, you know, the people in the lab are kind of gearheads and, uh, you know, want to do everything with the instrument, do a lot of exploration. Uh, but then you have, you know, maybe a uh, recombinant uh, protein uh, lab where they're just making proteins for project teams and they just want to look at and get an accurate mass of the intact protein. Um, so for those labs, they want it to be just a walk-up instrument. Um, and there are already, you know, lots of walk-up instruments for chemistry and biology. And so easy use is there. Now it's down to can we make these more complex experiments easier to do and uh, reproducible. And 
most common types of experiments now are already there. And now we're really pushing into realms where we're looking at a, like top-down sequencing um, and top-down sequencing out of biofluids, you know, looking at really complex samples. And so as the complexity of the samples increases, that's where we need to uh, have a few more innovations to help uh, clean things up. You just picked up on one of the words that I want to also highlight. You work for Brooker, I work for Brooker. Now that you're on this side of it, can you explain how the mass spectrometry evolution occurs and what the timeline is there? We can't put a new product out to market next week. So how long does it take for innovation to occur in our field as well? So I guess there's two kinds of innovation. One is instrumentation. Um, If you look at just the hardware and what hardware can do, it's really, really amazing. Um, a perfect example is, uh, you know, uh, Bruker. We just purchased Phasmatech at the beginning of this year. They make something called an Omnitrap. Uh, it's a fairly complex uh, uh, component to the mass spectrometer, and it can do really amazing things. And so the idea is we take that and uh, we click it onto one of our instruments, and we have a new instrument. And so that's a uh, relatively easy to do in a, in a breadboard fashion, uh, but to ab- have it as a robust instrument uh, is just an amazing amount of work. Uh, and it's not just the hardware, it's the software too. Um, so there's the, the hardware component. I think those innovations are just happening all the time, uh, but it's it's translating that into a robust instrument uh, with software to back it with ease of use. That is really where the, uh, the complexity comes in and the product development really requires a massive amount of teamwork. Um, you can have the best physicist in the world, but if you can't make uh, something where a uh, pharma scientist sits down in front of the computer and can't figure out how to turn it on, then uh, it's no good. And so the, the teams to build these products and bring them forward to market are extremely diverse uh, and uh, have to be, everybody on the team has to be really knowledgeable and aligned with what they want to do. Um, so it's something uh, now working for Bruker as opposed to working for Pharma, uh, I have a whole new appreciation of not just uh, product development, but the whole sales cycle and everything else that goes behind it. So what about post-sales? That's one of the things that you didn't touch on. What's something that mass spec companies do to help people get up and running? And what does that look like from your perspective? So uh, one of the things when Bruker started the uh, Pharma Biopharma Business Unit, which I'm directing, um, they started the unit six years ago. One of the first things I said is to differentiate uh, ourselves from uh, the rest of the, the vendors is going to be support of our customers. As I said, uh, the hardware out there is really, really amazing. For the most part, pretty robust. There's, there's great instrumentation. Um, uh, I believe uh, at Bruker we have some really amazing, unique things. But again, none of that matters if you can't support your customers. So one of the things we do is we have uh, field ask people just to sign to Pharma Labs to understand the pharma language. Um, and we'll go in there and help people sit with them as long as they need before to get an understanding of how to do the software develop methods and operate. So I think, think really uh, post-sales support is a huge thing. 
Uh, when we talk about success in a pharma lab, it's not selling instruments. It's actually having that instrument being used on a daily basis. Um, selling an instrument, having to sit in the corner to me is pointless. Um, we want it to be used every day. And when it's used every day, of course, they're going to buy more, which is uh, good for us. So, Mike, it's been really great chatting with you. Um, I always enjoy hearing about the professional path that people have taken. But I know you have another major theme in your personal life, and that's of sports. You play college football. You're currently a, a very avid hockey player as a hobby. Can you tell us how sports has provided you with a useful mentality towards your career and how it's influenced you? Um, yeah, I think uh, a couple of things. One is teamwork. Um, it's interesting when I interview people, I can generally tell if they played a team sport uh, sometime in their life. Um, it, it just kind of comes across sometimes. Um, one thing I had no clue about, uh, uh, you know, I spent my whole career uh, in basically working in the lab, uh, doing biotech and pharma, drug discovery experiments. Didn't know anything about business, didn't know anything about sales, marketing, anything like that. I was very fortunate. Uh, Rowan Pagura hired me at Bruker and basically taught me about all of these different things. And uh, one thing I had no idea is that sales, especially the way we do sales for pharma, is probably requires more teamwork than anything I've ever been involved in. Um, a lot of people think it's just the salesperson goes out there and say, hey, you know, buy some stuff and, uh, and that's it being done. But um, within Bruker, we have business units, we have marketing people, we have the software teams, we have the hardware teams, the service teams, and we need every single one of them involved to make a sale happen. And uh, within the pharma group, uh, we view ourselves as a global team. If you look at any of the big pharmas, they have labs around the world. Uh, so the, the pharma team at Bruker, uh, we're a global team. We interact across the globe constantly to make sure we're aligned. And uh, by doing this, it really makes us more effective. And so I guess uh, I spent my you know kind of early life doing sports on teams. And uh, I, I, I see how important it is in the sales process, too. And I try and bring that into the into the Bruker world. So, yeah, there's the team aspect, which is pretty obvious. I guess the other thing uh, you learn in sports is that um, uh, you learn different ways to push yourself, push other people, um, and uh, just to fight through whatever problems there are. Um, our job as scientists is generally problem solving. Um, one of the things, you know, you, you learn in you know, chemistry or whatever a science class is you're taking the scientific method. And... Uh, you know, the scientific method actually <laughs> is basically what you apply to any, um, like a sports situation at halftime when you're trying to solve problems. And, and so you're, you're applying things like that. You're, you're pushing yourself and, uh, you know, bringing everybody in, every component in you can to help achieve the goal. So I guess that would be the, the second thing. It's kind of like the first thing, but a little different. So I may not like the answer to this. But we've known each other for a few years now. Do you think that I played sports or not based on the interactions that we've had over the years? I would say no. <laughs> <laughs> you would, you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, it's not a negative thing. It's, it's just a different way people approach uh, situations. Um, and I've had people in my group who are 
just really been outstanding scientists who never played sports. I, I encourage them as adults to go play. You can still learn. Don't worry. No <laughs> offense taken. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that, um, I'll say thank you once more and appreciate your insight and your thought leadership um, in this field. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Welcome back to OMG Omics. And I'm really thrilled that you've stuck with us throughout the year. If you didn't know this, only... of podcasts make it past three episodes. So I feel like we've done pretty well this year. Thanks for staying tuned to listen to Mike Gregg.